Aloha. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Queen's Transplant Center is celebrating its 10-year anniversary. They took over the transplant program here in the islands in 2012, and since then, they are the only premier transplant center in all of the Pacific Rim and have taken care of our Hawaii residents with amazing ability and expertise. And today, we have one of their head transplant surgeons, Dr. Linda Wong, on the line, and we're going to be talking about what types of organ transplants we do locally and what is that whole process, how long does recovery take, and what that experience is right here in the island. So thank you for joining me today, Dr. Wong. Hi. Now, you've been in transplant surgery for a long time. How long have has you been in this field in your career? So I came back to Hawaii in 1993, so I was just telling you how old I am, but it's been a long time. I won't do the math, I promise. And what sorts of what sorts of things made you want to do transplant surgery? I remember in medical school thinking how amazing medicine has developed because there are certain organs of the body you can't live without and the fact you could take it out and kind of replace it is just I mean still mind-boggling to me. What what made you decide transplant surgery was was your career journey? Um you know, I did the whole five-year surgical residency, and uh, surgery is great. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a technical experience, and you have the opportunity to cut out cancer and make people better. But transplanting a whole organ was just, it was so impactful um, to the patient. Um, it's life-altering, and you can really just make a huge difference and quickly. And I think it was that that instant um, making people better that made made this so exciting. And it's pretty transformative. I mean, when you do certain types of transplants, you can see within probably just a couple of hours, if not a few days, dramatic recovery in the patients who have the transplants. Exactly. Um, you can tell in the operating room that, you know, their life is going to be changed. I mean, you're taking them, especially liver transplant, you're taking them from the, the brink of death and you're, they're about to see the white light, and you're bringing them back. And that's exciting. It is transformative. Well, and it's amazing that you have that ability to be able to do that. Now, how long did it take you to learn the surgical expertise to do transplant surgery? You mentioned five years of surgical training, and this is an additional fellowship on top of that. What is the duration of time for that? So the fellowship that I had was a year and a half, but uh, currently that fellowship is now two years. So it's two years after the five, after the four years of medical school. So it's basically a lot of years. A lot of years. Some of your prime years are spent in operating rooms and, and working really hard in training to make sure that you have the ability to learn and provide these these life-saving surgeries. Now, what sorts of transplants are done here in the islands? So we are currently doing liver transplants and kidney transplants. Uh, we are trying to restart our pancreas uh, transplant uh, program, and hopefully we'll get that started uh, in the next year. So let's talk about liver transplants first. What sort of situations would someone encounter that would make them need a liver transplant? Um, I think this is a, a constantly evolving problem. I think probably back 20 years ago, most of our transplants were done for viral hepatitis, things like hepatitis B and hepatitis C. 
Um, but I think a lot of the new drugs um, that have come out for hepatitis C have um, made the liver transplant for this um, particular disease a lot less. Um, we are seeing a lot more patients who have um, fatty liver. It's what we call NASH or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. So these are people with um, long-term fat changes in their liver that eventually progress to cirrhosis. A lot of these patients are have diabetes and high, high cholesterol and other um, obesity issues that have um, resulted in a lot of fat in their liver. And we are seeing um, a lot more patients who've had um, alcoholic um, liver disease, and they've stopped drinking alcohol so that they can qualify for transplant. So that's an important point. You can't necessarily qualify if you're still actively drinking, which is affecting your liver. So you do have to have a period of sobriety. How long is that? Um, we, we generally have been telling patients that we want them to be sober for six months and have um, some evidence that they're really committed to being sober. Um, it's also helpful to have you know, a good support system so that you can get through this process easily. Um, there are places in the country that will do patients with alcoholic hepatitis. So these are people who probably have been drinking more recently. Um, but again, these are done in very select situations in which you know, they know that the patient has a, a really good chance of recovering and staying sober afterwards. Now, I know you mentioned the other situation of fatty liver, that non-alcoholic steatohepatitis. And, you know, it strikes me that there's probably, because we don't have a lot of good medical treatments for that. I mean, the current mainstay is weight loss, control the diabetes, take cholesterol medicine. But it's not like we have a medication that targets that yet. There are some that are coming on the horizon. But unlike hepatitis C, where there's some different medications that have been actually seen to cure someone from hep C, we don't see the same thing for fatty liver. Do you think we're going to see a increase in the number of patients diagnosed with the cirrhosis from fatty liver now that we've started to kind of keep an eye out and start looking for it more? I mean, I'm seeing a huge number, an increase in the numbers of patients with the metabolic conditions that result in that. I'm wondering, do you think that's going to be a huge game changer as time goes on until we find some other treatment for it? I think we're seeing that already. We have a large um, percentage of the uh, people on the waiting list who have this fatty liver disease-related cirrhosis. And, you know, I think a large population, uh, percentage of the population is, is obese and probably not getting enough exercise. Uh, there's a lot more diabetes, um, hyperlipidemia, and all of these things that um, cause you to have fatty liver. And I think that it's probably a little under-recognized, and I think that we kind of have to do a better job recognizing it a little bit earlier so that we can, you know, get people to start the diet and exercise programs earlier in life. Well, and you mentioned something about a waiting list, and I think that's another important area to discuss. It doesn't, just because you need a transplant doesn't mean that it happens immediately. There is a process, and in fact, you know, there's a lot of, of details that have to take place. You have to make sure you're healthy enough to even tolerate a transplant. But then there's also a severity list. When you think about the waiting list, how do you describe that to your patients? Because, you know, someone who is mildly ill may not necessarily be at the top of the list, even if there is a donor match, because they may not have a condition that requires immediate treatment. Is that right? Uh, correct. I think patients always want to know about how long they're going to wait. And how long you wait depends on a lot of different things. It depends on really how sick you are. 
and each patient who is on the transplant list gets a score. And this is called the MELD score. It's the model for end-stage liver disease. And it's based on several blood tests in order to calculate this score. And the scores run from 7 to 40. So the higher the number, the sicker you are. So when patients are put on the list, they get a score, and um, you know their blood type is also taken into consideration. So um, it's basically we have four different lists based on blood type, and each patient also gets a score. So when we get a donor liver, we match it up by blood type, and then we take the person with the highest score first. So we're going to do sickest patients first because these patients are more likely to die quickly. So we want to get the sickest patients transplanted before they die. And where do we get the livers from? Um, The vast majority of our livers are coming um, locally. So any of the islands, um, we actually go out and procure organs from um, donors on any of the islands. Um, If patients are particularly sick and if they have a very high MELD score, we do have the opportunity to get livers from the mainland. Um, But generally that takes a a little bit of effort because we have to do a lot of coordination. These livers can only sit on ice for, we're supposed to get them in by 24 hours, but the longer you take and the longer it sits on ice, probably the worse it, it works. So we generally want to get these livers in by about 14 or 15 hours. So we have to coordinate flights and coordinate when they take out the organs in the mainland in order to get them here in time. So it's a little bit of a logistical problem, especially coming from a long distance. And when you said we get donors directly from our population here, that's, do we do living donors or are we talking about people who have unfortunately had some sort of accident or they're they're deceased and they're an organ donor? So or maybe we, both. We, we don't do living donor livers here in Hawaii, and um, a lot of that's far more complicated, and you probably need more staff to do that. I need more, a little bit more expertise and a, kind of a bigger team. And I think probably, you know, patients who are interested in that, um, you know, are better served at a, a bigger center that does this more often. So we just do um, deceased donors uh, for liver transplant, and so these are patients who might have had an accident or had a stroke or some sort sort of um, unfortunate um, head injury problem in which they are brain dead and they're not expected, they're not going to survive. They're basically um, dead but kept alive on machines. And we can take out those organs as long as um, either they've registered to donate or, you know, family members consent to their donation. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. When we come back, we're going to talk about how to know if you're an organ donor or someone you love is. There's an easy way you can check, possibly even on your driver's license. And we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Linda Wong about the expertise right here in the islands with Queen's Transplant Center in celebration of their 10 years of serving our patients right here at home. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors, Bavarian motor experts, and Chaminade University. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and today I have Dr. Linda Wong on the line, and she is sharing her expertise with decades of experience doing transplants right here in the islands. Right before the break, we were talking a little bit about the 
types of ways that you can you actually get a liver if there's a, if you're on a donor list. And one of the things we talked about is someone who might be an organ donor. Now, Dr. Wong, I have a little sticker on my license that says, I am an organ donor. How else might people know if they or their loved ones are organ donors? You mentioned a registry. Is there something in particular they have to do? So they can go to the website um, for legacyoflifehawaii.com and they can register in that way. And if you're registered, then um, what happens is that if you, for some unfortunate re- reason, become brain dead, they will look on this registry to see if you're registered. Um, and if not, um, they will check your driver's license. And these are two ways in which you can kind of, um, you know, potentially donate sometime some unfortunate accident happens. Well, and, you know, we've heard these stories of people who, unfortunately, someone passes away, but their organs are able to be used for someone who's really sick. And with that organ, they may live a long, healthy life. And it's certainly something that, as a member of the medical profession, I feel pretty passionate about wanting to make sure that should something happen to me, I want to be able to provide that for another individual. I think all of those of us in medicine are probably feel kind of similar about that, and a lot of other folks probably do as well. Now, we've talked a little bit about liver transplants. Let's talk about kidney transplants, because that's something that is another type of transplant for an organ that for people who have kidney failure sometimes wind up being Uh, given opportunities for dialysis, but that becomes a lifelong commitment of going to a center or doing it at home. Who would qualify for a kidney transplant? So, uh, again, each patient who is on dialysis or who's about to be on dialysis, you know, they are given the opportunity to consider a kidney transplant. Um, We generally have these patients go through an evaluation process and um, some of this involves uh, a lot of testing and seeing some uh, physicians as well as the rest, other members of our team. And what we're looking for is we want to make sure that um, a patient doesn't have any cancer that's widely spread all over the place. We want to make sure that they um, have a good heart and lungs so that they can stand the anesthesia, um, that they don't have any active infections, and, and really that they need... Um, a, a good support system to kind of help them through this process. Um, it, it's helpful to have a family member or a, a relative or a husband or a friend or somebody that can help you um, come to the appointments and, you know, somebody to contact in case you're having problems, somebody to help you with the medication. So it's important to have a good um, support system when you go through this process. So once they are um, have gone through the evaluation process, we uh, you know decide if they're a good candidate, and if they are, then we can put them on the list. Um, and these are the patients who have the opportunity of you know maybe one day having this operation and getting off dialysis. Now, dialysis often is the end result of kidney damage that might occur from some pretty common conditions, diabetes, high blood pressure. There are some rare genetic conditions that do it. Are those the same types of conditions that you often see of the patients who are referred for kidney transplant? Uh, yes, exactly. I think the vast majority of patients that we see are um, have complications of end-stage kidney damage from diabetes and hypertension. Those are probably the two most common causes. You know, we do have some other patients who have things like lupus and, uh, again, some other uh, autoimmune conditions or or genetic disorders. Um, But the vast majority are from high blood pressure and diabetes. 
Now, given the unique ethnic backgrounds of a lot of our residents, do we wind up having some unique requirements when it comes to matching and kidney donors? Um, I think, you know, again, the main match is by, by blood type. Um, we do also do some other uh, testing. It's called HLA testing. It's more to look at your genes. And um, you know, ethnicity does play a role in there, but I, I think that the, the main thing is the, is the blood type match. Um, there are patients who have certain um, antibodies or certain chemicals that might react with um, other um, genes, and so we kind of test them for those things, and we kind of keep those in mind. And sometimes we find a you know a perfectly matched donor, and those patients probably do a little bit better. Um, does race depend? Maybe a little bit, probably not as much as blood type. Do we do living kidney donors here in Hawaii? Yes, we do living kidney <clears throat> donors. And, um, you know, I, I think that's a great thing, and I think those kidneys probably work a little bit better. Well, and it sounds like if somebody's, you know, doing well and they haven't had any unfortunate accident or any troubles, that, you know, they might be able to donate a kidney to a loved one. We do often see that it's mainly relatives that are donating, sort of a family member genetically related, or if it's not genetics, maybe a spouse or someone who has that ability? Um, yes. I think that um, it, it can be anybody who's willing to donate to you as long as it's a, a, a blood type match. Um, you know, if you have a twin sister or a twin brother, that probably works the best because your genes are identical and you probably don't need to be on um, anti-rejection medicine. But very few people have a perfectly matched twin sister or twin brother, so it's a little bit of a tough situation. But anybody that has a, a blood type match is you know, something that can be, someone that can be a donor. Now, you mentioned anti-rejection medicine. That's one of the qualifying criteria if you're able to tolerate medication to help you from rejecting the organ. So are there certain situations where someone might not be eligible just because they can't tolerate some of the treatments to help them keep that organ? The vast majority of patients can tolerate these medications. Um, some of these medicines do increase your chances of getting certain cancers. And if you have an active cancer, then getting these medicines would make your cancer grow back faster. So we generally don't transplant patients who have an active cancer. Also, if you have an active infection, um, the medicines may make your infection worse. So we have to check things out. So patients who have active infections or active cancer are not patients that are going to be able to tolerate transplant. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion with Dr. Linda Wong about the recovery process for liver and kidney transplants. And we'll talk a little bit about the hopeful resurgence of pancreas transplants. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor Hastings and Pleadwell, a communication company. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Dr. Linda Wong. She is the head of Queen's Transplant Center and has decades of experience doing transplants of liver and kidney right here in the islands. And right before the break, we were talking about the idea of donating a kidney to a loved one. You know, unfortunately, there aren't two of me. I don't have a genetic match. 
But uh, I suspect some people are pretty happy there's not two of me. But, you know, that is a process if you have someone who has a similar blood type by, you know, a sibling or someone who needs a kidney transplant. There are some ways that we can do these donations here in the islands. Now, I'm curious, how long is the recovery process, both for the donor and then also for the recipient of a kidney transplant? So the donor, first of all, just to, to clarify, we put all the donors through an evaluation process as well. We want to make sure that they have two good kidneys because they're going to give one away. So we want to make sure that they can survive with their one less, uh, one one kidney that's left. So we do do some tests on them, and I think that if you had um, bad diabetes or bad high blood pressure, we don't want to take out one of your kidneys because you may one day have some kidney problems of your own. So we do test the donor um, to make sure that they're really healthy and that they'll be able to tolerate having one kidney removed. Now, if they are a, um, a good match and they've run through all the tests and everything's okay, then we do the donor operation and the recipient operation on the same day in two separate rooms. So um, the donor has a kidney removed and then one surgeon walks next door and then they put the kidney in and on, on the recipient next door. Um, the donors typically will stay in the hospital for one, maybe two days, and the recovery is generally pretty good, um, and most patients do really well, and they probably can return to their life and go back to work and do all the things they used to do, um, probably in a couple weeks. How about the recipient? So the recipient probably has to stay in the hospital maybe four or five days. You know, we want to make sure that the kidney is working well. Um, that the, any pain from the operation is pretty well controlled, that they can tolerate a diet and they can tolerate the medications. That generally takes about four or five days. Now, you mentioned sometimes you can actually see the recovery in the operating room. So I, I can only imagine that when that transplanted kidney starts to produce urine, it's sort of an exciting moment that everyone's waiting for. And if someone has previously been on dialysis and they receive a kidney transplant, do they have to go back to dialysis for a while, or does that kidney transplant just start taking over the job immediately? So the vast majority of these kidneys are going to work um, right in the operating room, um, especially the living donors. Those kidneys tend to work. As you're putting it in, you can start seeing urine coming out before you can plug in the last urine tube. Um, some of the kidneys that come from deceased donors are a little bit slow to start, and there's probably a maybe 5 to 10% of the patients who might need a dialysis treatment before um, the kidney starts to work. So the vast majority of patients don't need dialysis after the transplant, but there are, there are a few percent in which kidneys are a little slow, and there's you know a small percentage in which the kidneys don't work at all. Well, and like you said, transformative. You take somebody who's either previously with with a liver situation on the brink of death or someone with a kidney situation where they're on dialysis or some other type of kidney treatment, and now all of a sudden they're free of that. It's pretty amazing. Now, you mentioned that you want to restart the pancreas transplant program. What sort of people would ever need a pancreas transplant? So um, people who need pancreas transplants are, are usually diabetics, and they're usually diabetics that have had it for a bit and also have some kidney problems. So we will transplant the pancreas and the kidney at the same time. And this can also be transformative in that you not only get off dialysis, but you can potentially get off insulin um, and be a normal person 
Um, and, and, and that's huge for patients who've had to give themselves insulin shots several times a day. They've had to check their blood sugar several times a day. It's, um, it's a big relief not to have to worry about that. Is this generally for type 1 diabetics or any type 2 diabetic on high quantities of insulin with multiple injections? It's generally done for type 1 diabetics, but, you know, we are starting to see um, this being done for some type 2s as well. So as you mentioned, it might literally transform someone's need to use injections. I know there have been some research into trying to develop almost allowing like AI to help out with detection with continuous glucose monitors of of someone's sugar and then attaching or connecting that to an insulin pump. But that's still a needle. That's still a pump. That's still a lot of treatment, whereas you're talking about putting in a pancreas transplant and potentially taking care of that person's diabetes, they may never need insulin or injections again. Yes. It's probably less labor-intensive to have a good pancreas rather than have to um, continuously have a pump and kind of you know, wonder what your blood sugar is. It's a little easier in that sense. So project forward in about five years. What would be your dream for what else we could do using the resources we have here in the islands to help promote transplants. Would there be another area that we should start taking a look at? Or is there some sort of, if you if you were crafting your future transplant center in five years and people said, money is no object, what would you do? You know, I, I think you can have all the money in the world, but, you know, you, you do also need people to be donors. And so, you know, it would be great to have everybody in Hawaii be a registered organ donor so that we would have a better supply of organs. Um, But I I don't know if money can solve that problem necessarily. Um, You know, we need some good advertisement campaigns and uh, maybe try to get people to understand organ donation a little bit better so that if everyone's registered, then, you know, we don't have to worry so much and maybe we can get some of these patients off the transplant waiting list and get them transplanted at a better rate. Um, It would be great to have more living donors. I think we have been a little slow on um, recruiting living donors. You know, people have been a little hesitant to donate. So it would be nice to have more living donors and to have everybody in Hawaii registered. That would be the best goal of all. Well, you've started that process just by educating us today here on The Body Show about how someone could register. So you would go to LegacyOfLifeHawaii.com, or you would also make sure when you renew your driver's license, you have a sticker that is placed on there, and you register as an organ donor. So that educational process, you've already started here today to try and get the word out. And you're absolutely right. We can have the best team in the world, but if we don't have... The organs, well, that's not necessarily going to help us to further along the transplant goals. And it certainly sounds like we have a lot of a lot of folks here in the islands who who could potentially, if they wanted to make that registry happen for themselves or for their loved ones, certainly anyone who has a family member who might have received a transplant, that's another reason to sort of think about what those options would be and how grateful you were when your family member received that. And that's another way that we can all support the transplant efforts right here in the islands. If people wanted to know more about it, can they go to Queen's website and get some more information? They can go to the Queen's website or they can go to the legacyoflife.com website. I think it's also important to stress that 
you know, not only registering, but, you know, have that talk with your family so that they know what your wishes are. So just in case, um, you know, you haven't registered, you can have a, a discussion with your family so that they, at least when the time comes, they will know what your wishes are. They will honor them. That's another very important point is let people know if you are an organ donor or if that is something you want to do, that that's something that you feel strongly about. Because very often if there's a sudden accident, you know, everyone is in a grieving state and they may not necessarily be aware of that unless you take the time to mention it. Boy, I really want to thank you today for sharing your expertise with us on The Body Show, Dr. Wong. I appreciate your time and effort to educate our public. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org. Follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Congratulations to Queen's Medical Center on 10 years of transplant expertise. And thank you to Dr. Linda Wong for sharing her expertise with us today about the process of transplant. We will see you right here next Monday when we talk more about health topics on The Body Show. We'll see you then. Thank you.